Hey everyone, Homes.com knows having the right agent can make or break your home search. That's why they provide home shoppers with an agent directory that gives you a detailed look at each agent's experience, like the number of closed sales in a specific neighborhood, average price range, and more. It lets you easily connect with all the agents in the area you're searching so you can find the right agent with the right experience and ultimately the right home for you. Homes.com, we've done your homework. Hey, everybody. If you want to tell the world something or sell the world something, head on over to Squarespace because they're going to help you build the website of your dreams. Say you want to sell some custom merch. Well, you can set up your online store, whether you sell physical, digital, or service products. Squarespace has the tools you need to start selling online. So go to squarespace.com slash stuff right now and you will face a free trial. And when you get ready to launch, use our offer code stuff and then you'll save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. How could you go wrong with Squarespace? Hey, everybody out there in the Pacific Northwest or with access to an airport or a car rental place that can get you to the Pacific Northwest, specifically at the end of January. We'll see you in Seattle, Portland and San Francisco. That's right. Our new live show for 2024, Seattle, Washington, January 24th at the Paramount Theater, then Portland at our home away from home at Revolution Hall on the 25th, and then winding it all up at Sketchfest on the 26th at the Sydney Goldstein Theater. Very nice. If you want tickets, if you want information, if you want tickets, you can go to a couple of places. You can go to our link tree at linktree slash SYSK, and you can go to our home on the web, stuffyoushouldknow.com. Click on the tour button and it'll take you to all of the beautiful places you can go to buy your tickets. And we'll see you guys in January. Welcome to Stuff You Should Know, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh and there's Chuck and Jerry's here too. And this is Stuff You Should Know. That's uh, right. Life is a highway. I want to ride it all night long. Not again. Down the river. Canadian legend. Tom Brokaw. Uh, That's right. No, it's not right. But hey, we want to uh, welcome yet another new writer that's helping us out. Mm -hmm. Welcome Anna, because Anna helped us with this. Anna Green. uh, Anna Green. And uh, I thought she did a really good job. And uh, we hope Anna can write some more stuff for us in the future. Mm Mm-hmm. And I could have sworn this was a listener suggestion. And I looked and I just could not find it. So if someone suggested that we do a show on a gentleman named Kenton Grua, who was a Grand Canyon River guide, pretty remarkable person, then I'm really sorry because I really, I I looked and looked through email, but I just couldn't find it. So that was nice. uh, Yeah. If you want to write in and say, hey, that was me, um, I'll I'll check it against my records and we'll give you a future shout out. (laughs) Uh, Also, I got to give Anna the coronation. You ready? (laughs) That's right. All right. Welcome aboard. The old mouth horn. So we're talking Kenton Grua. Never heard of this person before in my life until I started researching um, this person, this man, Mm -hmm. this legend, actually, really. Uh, he's uh, if especially if you spend much time hanging out with Grand Canyon River folk, you will you will hear stories of Kenton Grua. Although apparently not from him while he was alive. He was supposedly very um, humble as far as his own accomplishments go. Mm-hmm. But if you uh, if you talk to one of his friends, you would probably get some thrilling stories out of them because he did some pretty interesting stuff uh, along that Colorado River. Yeah, absolutely. And we also want to shout out a book uh, that both Anna and we and we used. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kevin Fedarko wrote a book called The Emerald Mile about uh, this river run, this record-breaking uh, timed river run down the Grand Canyon River, yeah. Colorado River. Right. Uh, and uh, I, I knew the name, and then I remembered that I watched this great documentary from Nat Geo called Into the Canyon, and Kevin Fedarko was one of the guys. He and a guy named Pete McBride mm-hmm. uh, hiked um, almost 750 miles from one end of the canyon to the other. And made this really gorgeous, gorgeous documentary. So I highly recommend Into the Canyon, uh, as well as the book, The Emerald Mile. And big thanks to everything that Kevin Fedarko does in terms of uh, raising awareness for the Grand Canyon. Like, think about that, man. That's so many miles. You would have to get a new pair of shoes at some point in the middle of that. I think they did. You'd have to. 
I think they bailed on an attempt and then came back and did it or something. I can't remember, but just gorgeous photography and uh, really good stuff. Uh, Grand Canyon is a, just a truly a magical place. Yeah. If you've never been there, just go. It's one of those places that you're like, yeah, I've seen pictures and stuff, but it's one of the pla- one of the few places that uh, where I truly understood the meaning of breathtaking. Like I actually literally got physically short of breath when I first stood there on that rim. Like you, you had a panic attack? No, it was just truly breathtaking. It's really, really just you got to go. You got to do it. Have you been? Uh, yes, I have. I've been to okay. the North Rim. I didn't ride a burrow or anything like that, but I did look down and get to see the whole thing. From that, yeah. that wooded, forested North Rim that is not like what you think of when you think of the Grand Canyon. It's like just a whole other side of it. It's really neat. Yeah, it's it's amazing. I did have a panic attack. That's why I couldn't breathe because okay. I was looking over <laughs> into it. And I'm like, I'm this is I can't do this. But yeah, it's pretty pretty neat for sure. Yeah, I've never been down to the river. Uh, my friend Brett and I hiked down. Uh, there's, I don't know, I'm not sure how far down it is, but we hiked down to, there's this one sort of area where you can hike down to and hang out for a bit mm-hmm. if you don't want to go down all the way and then hike back out <laughs> and young in shape Chuck, uh, that, that hike out was one of the toughest things I've ever done. Cause you're basically just going up, right? Up, 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 up in the heat, heat, heat. Oh, wow. So back to Kenton Grua, uh, he was somebody who could hike up the sides of the canyon up out of it because he did that a lot, mostly because he spent a lot, essentially his entire adult life in the Grand Canyon along the Colorado River. And if he wanted to go see his family or friends, see a movie, that's what he had to do. He had to hike out of the Grand Canyon to go do those things. So he was, from everything I saw, extraordinarily fit, but also kind of a at one with the canyon, if if anybody could be, he was definitely one of those people. Yeah, for sure. Uh, he was born in Salt Lake City in 1950 and was really big into snow skiing uh, until he was 12 years old when his family, uh, because of business, his father started a trucking company, uh, moved to Vernal, Utah. Uh, at the time, there was no skiing in Vernal. And so his dad said, hey, kiddo, you're 12, you're, you'd love to be outdoors and adventure. So let's go on a on a rafting trip. And they went to the Yampa River mm-hmm. for his birthday. And Kenton Grua was like, this is where it's at. I love river rafting. So uh, Pops bought him a uh, army surplus raft. And he, as a, as a young kid, started taking these little solo rafting trips. Right. And that's kind of where he learned how to navigate rivers initially. He got the river bug. He totally got the river bug. A few years later, he was going to study mechanical engineering at the University of Utah. And um, during winter break of freshman year, he was offered a job working for Hatch River Expeditions, a river boating um, outfit along the Colorado River in the Grand Canyon. And he said, so long, college. I'm going to go do this. And the job was even just patching boats. Like It wasn't even as a river guide. Um, but that's how much he loved spending time, not just on the river, but specifically the Colorado River in the Grand Canyon itself. Yeah. Um, but because of his natural talent and his just complete passion for the job, he became river guide within just a few months of his first job there. Yeah, absolutely. So he's now uh, taking adventuresome tourists through the Grand Canyon, down the river. Uh, he got another job after that at Grand Canyon Expeditions for a little while. And met a really important person in his life there, uh, a mentor in some way as far as uh, conservationism, uh, a guy named Martin Litton, uh, L-I-T-T-O-N, mm-hmm. who was starting his own uh, company, his own expedition company. And Litton was about, he was all about uh, just preserving the, the not just the Grand Canyon, but just all of nature and, and was just sort of ashamed of what humankind had done to nature. Uh, and in fact, uh, the boat that um, that Grua would eventually uh, pilot down the, the Colorado River for that record-breaking run mm. uh, was called the, uh, the Emerald Mile. Um, these boats uh, Lytton had, he would name them after natural wonders that had been destroyed by humans 
as a reminder, and this apparently the Emerald Mile was a stretch of old growth redwoods in California mm. that were clear cut in the 60s. So he named this wooden dory, this boat that you paddle with oars after that stretch of redwoods. Yeah, and a dory in particular, um, for the most part, people at the time, and I think still today, were going down the Colorado River through the Grand Canyon on these expedition tours in rubber boats, like Zodiacs, like motorized boats that you could bump up against rocks all day and they were probably going to be fine. That's Some the, of them were regular boats. What do you mean regular, like a pontoon? No, like in the early days, they were just like, I saw some that looked like old wooden crisscrafts. Oh, wow. Okay. Wow. That's kind of cool. Talk about doing but, it in But also style. motorized rafts, yeah. Okay. So the dory itself, though, it was originally like a fishing boat um, that Europeans, I think the Portuguese were the ones who really kind of perfected it would take out on the ocean. So they were like seaworthy rowboats, basically. And um, they eventually made their way to New England where whalers would take them out. And then Martin Linton got his hands on them for the Grand Canyon because he was just like, you you, you experience the Colorado River in a dory in ways that you can't possibly yeah. in a raft, let alone a motorized raft. So there, it's like a purposefully old-timey antique way of going down the Colorado River. And they still use dories today, as a matter of fact, some outfits do. Yeah, and Grua was like, this thing is amazing. Because, you know, he wanted, uh, as we'll see, he really enjoyed getting down that river fast. Mm -hmm. And this, the, the dories, like, they, they won't, obviously, because they're made of wood, they won't bounce off a rock like a raft will. But they're much more uh, able to be steered. They handle a lot better. Mm -hmm. Uh, they're much more, uh, I don't know if lithe is the right word, but y you can you can motor down that that river in a dory better than you can in a raft if you're into speed and turning. Sure, but but a lot of them, most of the dory expeditions use oars, they're rowed, right? Oh, yeah. So the other thing about it that you, you mentioned is that like uh, it won't handle bumping against rocks like a raft will. They're much more fragile, much less forgiving than a rubber raft which means you have to be that much more um, uh, experienced and uh, mm -hmm. have that much greater ability to take a dory down the Colorado River than you would like a raft. Yeah, and, you know, they can get dinged up a little. I, I kind of thought at first, like, you hit a rock with one of these and you're sinking immediately. It just explodes and, and catches fire. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I'm sure that can happen, but uh, as as you will see, you know, they can— they can get bumped up a little bit and, you know, they're pretty hardy, I think. Yeah, no, for sure. But it's just some of those rapids can be pretty rough on the old boat. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, Grua was in love with dories just like Martin Litton was. Um, and he came on Litton's company, Grand Canyon Dories, and began piloting a dory called the Chattahoochee. Um, and he did that for like 10 years down the Colorado River. He made nearly 100 trips, which by my my estimation, that's almost half of the days between 1969 and 1979 when he made those 100 trips he spent on the Colorado River. That's a lot of time nice on the Colorado, Colorado. That's exactly what he wanted to do. He could not yeah. have been happier. He chose this life for himself, and he, he just did it. He made it work, and he became an expert on the Colorado River as it runs through the Grand Canyon. Totally. Uh uh, like reading this, I got very jealous of his life. <laughs> yeah, I was looking at some of the Dory expeditions they have, and I was like, man, that's amazing. And then it's like 18 days. I said, no, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> like, are there helicopters that you can lower in and do a couple of days and then come out? No, there's not. There's not, apparently. Well, sadly, there are helicopter trips, that, and they will take you down and land you on a big plateau. Uh -huh. That's one of the things I learned from that documentary uh, that Fedarka was in was they were— trying to raise, raise awareness for these, you know, they're, they're trying to build some big, like, hotel, basically, mm -hmm. like halfway down the canyon. And all these people were fighting it and saying, like, you can't do that. You can't turn this into uh, a place where people can get, rich people can get helicoptered in and stay in a five-star resort. Like, no, no, no. Okay. First of all, I felt like a jackass before. Now I really feel like a jackass. But so <laughs> well, you were talking about getting dropped off to row. Sure. Like ziplining out like a like a ranger. Right. But I mean, like walking down from a resort to go row for a couple of days, maybe even that better. That's pretty good. <laughs> but the um, but the 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 kind of upshot of what you're saying is a, a good analogy from what I understand 
to compare rafting or boating down the Colorado River these days would be like going on an expedition to Everest. It is nothing like it used to be. Um, Even 20, 30, 40 years ago, it's just gotten so much easier. There's so much Mm -hmm. money being thrown at this now. It's just not even a challenge any longer. It's like a posh vacation for people who like to act like they're, they're adventurers. And I'm saying that I'm not going to climb Everest. I, so I'm, I can't really be critical, but I'm saying comparing it to how it originally started when these outfits mm-hmm. were first created in like the 40s, 50s, 60s, um, it's, it's just nothing like that today. It's far more commercialized, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. So if in the meme, how it started, how it's going, yeah. there'll be a, a person like bleeding from the head and spitting wa- a river water out of their mouth. Uh-huh. And then another one with a, a dude holding a martini right? as he goes down the river. Exactly. Uh, all right. I say we take a break. Oh, yeah. And we come back and we talk a little bit uh, more about Kenton Grua, the man. All right. Game off. Let's pause here to talk more about Monopoly Go. Because in Monopoly Go, you can team up with your friends for timed tournaments where you work together to build up each other's boards. It's very nice. That's right. And the more you win together, the more awesome prizes you unlock. And there's so much to get. I'm talking about unique stickers that you can trade with friends to complete albums for big prizes, cool new playing pieces to travel the boards with, or hilarious emojis for taunting friends when you smash their buildings or heist their vaults. Plus, Monopoly Go feels new and exciting every day with constantly changing tournaments and challenges, like digging for treasure or a robot pachinko machine. And there's always new timed events that help you win big, like massive multipliers for everything you win or rent frenzies. That's right. There's always something fun to discover in Monopoly Go. So get off the bench and go download it now for free on Google Play or the App Store. Game on! Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey fam, I'm Simone Boyce. I'm Danielle Robay. And we're the hosts of The Bright Side, a daily podcast from Hello Sunshine that's guaranteed to light up your day. Every weekday, we bring you conversations with the culture makers who inspire us. Like our recent episode with Hollywood royalty Regina and Raina King. We talked about the creative power of women's relationships. I feel like, thank God for women, like, especially when it comes to Black women the way we lean on our mothers, our grandmothers, our sisters, our friends. We're just each other's pulse. I mean, it's molecular, you know? Listen to The Bright Side from Hello Sunshine on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As promised, we're going to tell you a little bit more about the the personality of Kenton Grua. Uh, he was uh, quite an adventurer, um, like you said, was just in love with nature and in, in particular the Grand Canyon and that river. Uh, his nickname was The Factor 
if you ever read anything, you're going to see him probably called Kenton the Factor Grua. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was because he, apparently he was just like this larger than life personality. And like anytime he was a part of something, he had some sort of influence on it. He was a factor and thus the factor. Yeah, well put. Uh, he was also very fond of pot and drinking liquor. Um, while he was working and on the trail and after, I guess, after rowing for the day, sitting on a beach. Yeah. He'd probably light up what one might call a spliff. <laughs> Back then, it'd probably be a doobie. For sure. And I'll bet it yeah. just gave you a headache instantly. <laughs> but he um, also was a little kind of fashion conscious, you could say. Anna points out that he would wear cut off Levi's that um, were, look cool, especially if you're barefoot and you uh, have long hair and you're stoned. But if you're like fall in the water, it takes yeah. like a week for those things to dry out. Yeah. So, long story short, Kenton Grew was very frequently chafed on the inside of his thighs. Right. <laughs> Uh, he was not a tall man. He was five foot six, uh, but you know, um, had an outsized personality and sense of adventure, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was one story that, uh, he was on one expedition and they drank all the booze. So he hiked all the way out of the Grand Canyon to go get more booze and hike back in. Yeah. That's just one story about Kenton Grew, but it, it definitely yeah. drives the point home. Like, he liked booze, but he was also willing to physically exert himself at the drop of a hat. So he was a tough dude, essentially. But he was also supposedly um, really kind and gentle with the, the tourists that he took down the river. Yeah. Um, he was well known for that. But he was also known for being very opinionated about how uh, the river should be navigated, how uh, a, an expedition should be run. And so he would be more than likely to butt heads with some of the other river guides that he worked with. But yeah. it, it, that didn't rub off toward the passengers, which I think makes him a pro, I, I'd say. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know, we're going to build up sort of story-wise to the, uh, to the record-breaking river run. But he did some pretty remarkable things before that. Right. Uh, one of which was to hike uh, the entire length of the Grand Canyon uh, from Lee's Ferry to Grand Wash Cliffs. Uh, he read a book in uh, 1968 that was a backpacker named Colin Fletcher who did that hike. Well, sort of. We'll see. Uh, the man who walked through time was the book. And he said, I'm the first person to hike the entire length of the Grand Canyon. Mm-hmm. And Grew was like, no, you didn't. You hiked the the canyon within the national park system. But, buddy, that ain't all of the Grand Canyon. That guy went, what? <laughs> so I'm going to do it. And he did. He he tried a couple of times. He tried the first time. Uh, and, you know, this is 277 miles as the crow flies. Yeah. Uh, like I mentioned before, when Fedarka did it, they hiked 750 miles because you can't just walk a straight line. You're There's things you just can't navigate around. So you're having to hike, you know, three times as much uh, or at least two and a half times as much as the length of the canyon to, to complete that hike. That's so nuts. And he did it. First time he tried it, remember I said he liked to run around barefoot and cut off Levi's? Oh, yeah. Well, this he realized he was going on a very long hike, so he went to the trouble of buying himself some leather moccasins to hike in. Those lasted a very short time before he started wearing through them and actually cut his foot on a cactus, started to get infected. He's like, I should probably stop now. That surprised uh, me that he would, I mean, that's a mistake. Yeah, I, I think Surely he was, he knew th- he was, th- that wasn't going to work, you know? I, I don't know that that's true. Like, he, he was capable of making mistakes for sure. He's also capable of evolving his opinions and, and understandings about things. And he wasn't yeah. so dumb that he kept going until he died. Right, yeah. You know, that was 1972, I think. Yeah. Four years later, he's like, I'm going to do this different. I'm going to not only wear work boots instead of um, moccasins, smart move out of the gate. Yeah. He scouted the whole route in advance and hid um, supply caches along the route so that he could travel as light as possible. And that's when he set out that second time. And that's when he was successful hiking um, almost 600 miles is the the route that he took. Wow. That is amazing. Um, I think he, uh, if you average it out, he was averaging like a almost 17 mile a day clip. Uh, which is super fast. Um, I mean, when I've done hikes and I'm really hauling it, 
if I if I get 10 miles in a day, that's like a really long, hard day. And he was in the Grand Canyon, arduous conditions in the 70s when gear was not like it is now mm-hmm. uh, and averaging close to 17 miles a day, which is nuts. It took him 36 days yeah. to complete the whole thing. I can barely get 17 miles in a day in a helicopter, <laughs> let alone hiking. So, yeah, 36 days to hike, almost 600 miles. And this is, again, it's not a straight line. It's not flat. Like, there's up and down and over. And it's it's it, what he did was very significant. And he became the first um, person on record, at least, to have hiked the entire length of the Grand Canyon, not just the National Park, the whole yeah. Grand Canyon. And so whenever you're hearing about people uh, boating through the Grand Canyon on the Colorado River, what they're talking about is that same length. They're, the whole ge- geographical Grand Canyon from Lee's Ferry to um, Grand Wash Cliffs. Man. All right. So let's talk a little bit about the that river run that you just described, uh, you know, from point to point. Uh, the very right. first expedition uh, down that Colorado River uh, was uh, by a guy, a Civil War veteran with one arm named John Wesley Powell in 1869. Yeah. Uh, it took 98 days at that point and pretty much wrecked the crew. I mean, it was by the time they got there, they were starving. Was it was a very very tough uh, ride in 1869. Can I just say uh, one thing about that expedition, Chuck? Sure. Three of them, three members of the expedition, said nuts to this, like we're giving up, and set off on foot, and were never heard from again. And they left two days before this expedition finally reached its destination. They just didn't know that they were clo- that close to the end, and they left and, mm. and died. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, that's sad. Yeah, but they were the first Europeans on record to have circumnavigated the Colorado River through the entire Grand Canyon, and it was a big deal. Yeah, that's like uh, it's the old line in Apocalypse Now. Never never get off the GD boat. Right, the gosh darn in the case, boat. In the case of Apocalypse Now, it's because there might be a tiger in the jungle. <laughs> right. So I saw also that this was considered the last voyage of discovery in North America. It was a big deal that John Wesley Powell and his, his group did this. That's right. Uh, then in 1949, there was a guy named Ed Hudson, who was a pharmacist, uh, who made a run in a motorboat. Uh, so it was obviously the fastest at the time at five days uh, and 10 minutes. And then all of a sudden, motorboats and regular boats started attempting these speed runs. Uh, people were trying to, you know, break previous records, uh, you know, depending on how adventurous you were, I guess. It depends on whether or not you wanted to use a motor. Uh, but obviously, the the berets are off to the people who didn't use the motor. Yeah. I'm sure it was still hard, but it ain't like paddling, you know? No, Ed Hudson, a pharmacist in 1949, he he did it in like five days and 10 minutes using a motorboat. Um, Jim and Bob Rigg, I think two years later, said nuts to the motorboat. We're going to not only go down the same path that John Wesley Powell did in 1869 that nearly killed him without a motor, we're going to break Ed Hudson's motor-based record. And they did, actually. Yeah, 52 hours. Uh, and this was at a time in the 50s when, like, a tourist trip, that same tourist trip in a non-motorized boat would be about three weeks. And, of course, they're not trying to break a record. They're trying to show everyone a nice, good time. Right, exactly. Probably Here, fairly relaxing. Take so it's spliff. not. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but some people did like the slow the slow train. Uh, the longest attempt uh, was in 73, and that took 103 days. That's a little more my speed, I think. So there, we, we need to say something about the Colorado River as Kenton Grua knew it. He came along in, what was it, 1968 or 69? Yeah. A hundred years exactly after John Wesley Powell, Kenton Grua came along and took up life on the Colorado River through the Grand Canyon. But unfortunately for Kenton Grua, that was six years after, the, I think, the Department of the Interior created the Glen Canyon Dam yeah, upstream of the Grand Canyon in uh, on, on the Colorado River. And the Colorado River was tamed. That's the best way to put it. It was up to the, um, I think, the Army Corps of Engineers or whoever runs the dam there um, at Glen Canyon to decide how much water the uh, Colorado River had. 
And before that, it had been considered the wildest river in America because the snow melt from the mountains upstream, depending on how, how much it, it snowed that year and then how, how, much, how high the temperatures rose and how quickly they did that spring, that river could turn wild in an instant because so much water would come down from the mountains and it would just flood the Colorado River, including some of the side canyons, and it would make it nuts. And Kenton Grua, I, and he knew this too, came along after that ceased. And so now the Colorado was relatively mild. Yeah, like if you're going to go down a river and you want to see how, how you know, uh, challenging it might be uh, as a rower, you're going to look at what's called the, the gradient uh, in feet per mile. And obviously, the higher the gradient the the more you know the faster that water is going to be mm-hmm. um a pretty wild river can have a gradient between 25 and 60 feet per mile uh the colorado river has a gradient of 8 feet per mile so the actual you know the where the river sits and the the land beneath that river that gradient isn't too crazy it is the the steepness of the sides of that canyon is what makes it crazy cuz like you said when that stuff flash floods and it hits the Colorado River, it can move boulders. Mm-hmm. It can create, you know, waves. And when that water hits the still water, it can create a wave like 20 to 30 feet high. Yeah, for sure. In a river. Yeah. And one of the reasons why stuff like that happens is because all that debris and boulder create these natural dams on either side of the river, narrowing the channel, speeding up the water. And once you have fast water running into slow water, all sorts of crazy stuff happens. So speaking geographically, the Colorado River shouldn't have rapids, but because of its situation in that stretch of the Grand Canyon, it does. It has some pretty cool rapids. And Kenton Gruen knew how to do this. Like his job was to take people through these rapids down this stream. But again, the river that he was on was not the same river that John Wesley Powell had been on because of the dam. Yeah, absolutely. So um, you want to talk about the first, uh, the first attempt in 1980? Yeah. Uh, I mean, successful attempt makes it sounds like he didn't do it. He actually True. did set a speed record in 1980. Uh, I think, um, how, how fast was that one? He did it in 46 hours and 56 minutes. He beat Jim yeah. and Bob Riggs' 1951 record, which had stood for almost 30 years. Yeah, so he breaks the record in... You would think, you know, a lot of people would say like, all right, I did what I attempted to do, broke that record. But Kitten Grewell was like, man, that river was was not fast that day, that right. couple of days. Yeah. And I can do this a lot faster. And he became sort of, uh, I don't know about obsessed, if that's the right word. I don't know if someone who smoked that much weed can get that obsessed or worked up about anything. Right. <laughs> but he said, I, I know I can do this if that like – it doesn't matter how fast I'm rowing unless I have a faster river just from the, the natural conditions. Right. Then I, I can't break that record. So I'm going to wait until the conditions are right. And that happened in 1983 because of El Nino. Uh, it was, uh, at the time at least, the most extreme El Nino that had happened to that point. Caused a ton of snow. Mm-hmm. Uh, all that snow melts at some point. And all of a sudden, you're going to have flooding such that uh, if you're measuring like like a river flow, you measure it in cubic feet per second. Right. The Colorado River through the Grand Canyon averages about 12,000 to 15,000 cubic feet per second. And that summer, uh, that June specifically, uh, I saw anywhere from between 70,000 and 100,000 uh, cubic feet per second, which is, um, you know, up seven to 10 times as fast. Yeah, that is a lot more water, number one. It goes a lot faster, and it changes the river. Like, the the river that he was used to, the rapids he was used to, the features that he had to circumnavigate during a normal um, boating trip down the Colorado, it was not there. They were different. They were altered by this huge influx of of very fast-moving water. And so what had happened, as Kevin Fedarko points out in the the Emerald Mile, um, that— for the first time, it probably for the only time in his lifetime, Kenton Grua had a chance to take on the Colorado River, the same river that John Wesley Powell took on in 1869. 
This stuff did not happen. It caught the Corps of Engineers so, by surprise, so much so that they, to keep the, the Lake Powell from topping over the Glen Canyon Dam, they were putting up plywood barriers. Yeah. That's how, like, unprepared they were for this incredibly historic flooding. I think there was, like, 2,600 miles of shoreline in Lake Powell, the reservoir that's behind the dam. And the, the reservoir was rising a foot a day. That's how much snowmelt was coming down. And so they were just releasing, according to Arizona Central, up to half a million cubic feet per second in a release at a time. So this was flooding the Colorado downstream, but it's the only option they had to keep the dam yeah. from breaking or from being toppled and, and um, you know, the water coming out of control. So it, it was a wild river again all of a sudden, like it had been before. And Kenton Grew was all about that. He was all about it. So I say we take a break and then we'll come back and let everyone know what happened on June 25th, 1983. All right, game off. Let's pause here to talk more about Monopoly Go. Because in Monopoly Go, you can team up with your friends for time tournaments where you work together to build up each other's boards. It's very nice. That's right. And the more you win together, the more awesome prizes you unlock. And there's so much to get. I'm talking about unique stickers that you can trade with friends to complete albums for big prizes, cool new playing pieces to travel the boards with, or hilarious emojis for taunting friends when you smash their buildings or heist their vaults. Plus, Monopoly Go feels new and exciting every day with constantly changing tournaments and challenges, like digging for treasure or a robot pachinko machine. And there's always new timed events that help you win big, like massive multipliers for everything you win or rent frenzies. That's right. There's always something fun to discover in Monopoly Go. So get off the bench and go download it now for free on Google Play or the App Store. Game on! <laughs> Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And, of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. <gasps> what? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey fam, I'm Simone Boyce. I'm Danielle Robay. And we're the hosts of The Bright Side, a daily podcast from Hello Sunshine that's guaranteed to light up your day. Every weekday, we bring you conversations with the culture makers who inspire us. Like our recent episode with Hollywood royalty Regina and Raina King. We talked about the creative power of women's relationships. I feel like, thank God for women, like, especially when it comes to Black women, the way we lean on our mothers, our grandmothers, our sisters, our friends. We're just each other's pulse. I mean, it's molecular, you know? Listen to The Bright Side from Hello Sunshine on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, so um, Kenton Grew says it's time. Like that 1980 record that I broke that I'm not very happy with, I'm now going to break that record. I'm going to take this river like I know it can be taken. And he went to his <laughs> friend Rudy Petschek, who was at the time 49. Kenton would yeah. have been 
33. Yeah. Yeah. So Rudy Petschek was like old. And then um, <laughs> Steve Wren Reynolds was the, the yeah. other guy that they, they brought on. So the three of them decided that they were going to take the Emerald Mile out uh, onto the Colorado River. And they said. He was 35, by the way. Okay. Wren? Yeah. Okay. Uh, and they went to the Park Service and said, hey, we'd like a permit. We're going to take the, the Emerald Mile down the Colorado River. It's nuts right now, isn't it? And the Park Service said, no, you're not going to do that. Yeah, you got to get a permit to do something like that. Uh, they said no, like you said. Um, they, they were trying to keep like, people. Uh, no, <laughs> they're trying to keep people off the river. Uh, and as we'll see later on, they even had a, a ranger stationed on the river. Uh, I guess it was Benjamin Bratt, probably uh, telling people to get out. What? You never saw the River Wild? No. Is that the one with Bruce Willis where he's a a cop in a boat? Nope. Okay. River Wild was uh, Meryl Streep and uh, David uh, Strathern, Kevin Bacon, and John C. Riley. Oh, isn't Kevin Bacon like a crazy homicidal serial killer who's stalking these guys? Uh, not a serial killer. Uh, he's a bad guy, though. Okay. It's a really good movie. I highly recommend it. Uh, but Benjamin Bratt is a ranger that literally does what this other ranger did. is like stationed down before the Bad Rapids saying, get out. You shouldn't be here. I just want to shout out um, the my favorite Benjamin Bratt fact that he was born on Alcatraz during the American Indian what? Movement's occupation of Alcatraz. Did we talk about that? Yeah, in our Alcatraz episode. And, and did not remember that. We'll also talk about it in our forthcoming Benjamin Bratt episode. We haven't done one on Alcatraz, have we? Yes, dude. You sure? I, I believe we did one on Alcatraz itself and the Escape from Alcatraz. Yeah, I do remember Escape from Alcatraz. That Escape from Alcatraz one, by the way, was a good one. All right, so he doesn't get the permit, so he goes back to uh, Martin Litton, his mentor, <laughs> and he says, hey, man, you got a lot of pull around here? Uh, I'm wondering if you could help me out. And Litton said, sure, I'll call up uh, the Grand Canyon uh, National Park Superintendent himself, uh, Richard Marks, uh, KS, not X. No. Did, were you going to make a Richard Marks joke? No, I just thought it would okay. be great if it had been <laughs> the Richard Marks, like in his life right before he hit it big. Right. And he said, he said, you know what? It don't mean nothing. And they went, hey, that's got a nice ring to it. Yeah, that's right. Sign on the dotted line. <laughs> Sign on the dotted line. That's a good song. It is. Uh, so Mark said, uh, all right, here's what I'll do. Um, I will call up the rangers out there on the river tomorrow, and I'll get back to you. Uh, he didn't get back to them. And so Lytton and Gruobo said, I guess that means we have permission, right? <laughs> right. And so they took off on June 25th, 1983. Yeah, 11 p.m. They took off, I guess, under the cover of darkness, maybe. I, that's the only reason I can think of that they took off so late. Yeah, or maybe they just timed it so they finished at a certain time or so. I don't know. I don't know either, but they did take off just before midnight that Avoid day. Avoid the heat, maybe? Maybe. That's a great one. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. Anyway, the, the fact is this. They were paddling for hours in pitch darkness. Because the canyons, the canyon walls of the Grand Canyon can prevent the sunlight from hitting inside the, the canyon at the river level it, it, during the day. This was nighttime. And mm -hmm. so the canyon walls were preventing any moonlight from even getting down. So they were rafting on a river that was flowing at about 10 times its normal rate, if not more, in the dark without the benefit of using their eyes. So they were having to like literally feel the vibrations in the oars to tell what was coming up and which way they should go during this nighttime paddling event that they did. Yeah. And I mean, to be sure, these were some of the most experienced people to undertake something like this, mm -hmm. but that is still like, uh, it, it just can't be overstated what a accomplishment this was just to make it through that first night yeah especially doing it stoned wearing nothing but cut off <laughs> levi's uh so they would paddle uh there were like i said th uh, three of them so they would paddle um for about 15 to 20 minutes at a time because it's really rigorous tough stuff that they're doing yeah uh grew up went up first and paddled first and they would switch off uh when they would get tired they would rest 
take little cat naps when they could, when they weren't paddling, obviously. Mm -hmm. Uh, And things were going pretty good for the first few hours. Uh, And then they reached a series of rapids called the Roaring Twenties that is uh, really tough in particular with all this water because uh, there's something in rivers called, I I would assume people know what an eddy is, but you might not. Um, Eddy is like a very calm part of a river, usually off to the side, uh, where the water is flowing back upstream Mm -hmm. in like a void in the current. Usually it's like blocked by a big rock or something. And it's a good place. Usually that's where you're, if you want to pull off uh, and, you know, get out of the boat and get on land, you'll, you'll pull off to a nice little calm eddy. Uh, But you can also have an area where the eddy meets the, the rapids and that's called an eddy fence. Uh, I saw it described as confused water. (laughs) Um, It doesn't really know which way to go. So it's going everywhere at once. And it's just really, really unstable water. And these eddy fences were all over the place, just like not crushing literally, but just like wreaking havoc on their boat in this in this trip they were taking. Yeah, because the water, the boat's going the direction of the water. And if the water all of a sudden is going multiple directions, that gets telegraphed to the boat and it makes it very difficult to move around, right? Yeah, but they did get through that part, obviously. They did. And again, they're going through the Roaring Twenties at night in pitch darkness. Just FYI, I just really want to make sure everybody keeps this in, in mind. The other thing is, is they were taking these rapids wide open. They weren't stopping to scout what was ahead and then getting back in the boat and then taking it with full knowledge of what was coming up. They yeah. just took it as it came, essentially. Yeah. Which is, again, really nuts considering that this was not the river that they were used to. It was the the swollen, wild, raging version of the river that they were used to. It was like the Colorado on bath salts, basically. <laughs> That's what they were taking on in the dark with without the benefit of eyesight. Yeah, I think steroids is overused. Bath salts. Yeah. If you really want to drive the point home, <laughs> use bath salts. No, don't actually use bath salts. I meant in your analogy. Right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, they get through this on, you know, experience, on instinct. Uh, like you said, feeling their way, uh, the sun finally comes up. Mm-hmm. They're flying down this river. Uh, they're going through, you know, all kinds of crazy rapids, huge whirlpools, uh, these big standing waves that I talked about that, you know, got up to 20 feet. I think one of the guys even said, uh, Petschik said some of them were like three stories high yeah. at times. And they finally get to uh, Crystal Rapid, which is at mile 98. And they were worn out, like super, super tired, obviously. And that is where Benjamin Bratt was stationed. Yeah. Uh, park ranger, Benjamin Bratt. And he said, hey, you shouldn't be paddling through here. And also, I was born on Alcatraz. That's a great Benjamin Bratt impression. <laughs> uh, no, he was stationed there to get, if there were any tourist boats that, you know, had somehow uh, already been on the water, which they shouldn't have been to begin with because they were denying permits. Yeah, I didn't understand that part. I had, you know, I guess they were just, there were some already out there maybe, because especially if some of them were taking three weeks. Oh, gotcha. They didn't want to ruin people's vacation. Maybe, but they were basically, he was there basically to say, hey, pull over. Uh, all of you tourists get out and hike out mm-hmm. and boat captain and whoever else, you're going to have to take this thing down the rest of the way, like by yourself. Yeah. I hope you don't like company because TS for you. Uh, that's right. But what happened? with this group. So they didn't, what, one of the things that caused Benjamin Bratt to be stationed there was that a commercial rafting outfit had gotten overturned. One of the boats had been overturned at this, um, under normal circumstances, very tough rapid called Crystal Rapids. Um, and one person had died. I believe a passenger had died. Um, this happened like 11 hours before the, um, Kenton grew and his group came along in the Emerald Mile, they were totally out of contact with everybody. So they had no idea this happened. Um, and so the reason Benjamin Bratt was there was because it was so dangerous what they were coming up on that um, literally their lives were in danger. So when they came upon the park ranger, Benjamin Bratt, um, they pretended they didn't see him. What was cool is... Like, look over there on the right, guys. Exactly. <laughs> um, the... Uh, the What was cool about it is that this park ranger had been a river guide himself. Mm -hmm. He immediately recognized who was in this boat, and he pretended he didn't see them. 
Yeah. So that everybody could just kind of go their own way and just pretend like they hadn't seen one another. And these guys could continue on because he said he knew immediately what they were doing because of the river conditions. So he just let them go their way. He kept an eye on them as they went uh, further along, though, and hit that crystal rapid. And uh, he witnessed their boat being overturned very violently. Yeah, this is when they hit one of those, uh, the one that uh, Petschik said was uh, two to three stories high. Flip that thing at the top. Uh, everyone ends up in the water. Mm-hmm. Uh, Grua was pretty okay, and Petschik was pretty okay. Uh, the boat got banged up a little bit. Uh, I think it lost some of its bow post, uh, a chunk out of the stern, but it was still, you know, very much operational. Mm-hmm. And Reynolds uh, was injured. I think there was a head injury. And as a result, he did not do a lot of at least tough rowing after that. I was surprised he did anything at all. I figured he'd be like Burt Reynolds in deliverance at that point, just sort of laying down in the middle of the canoe. Right. Uh, but he apparently would row some uh, calmer parts, uh, and I guess take that with a grain of salt because I don't think any of it was very calm. Right. Uh, and Grua and Petschik said, all right, it's the two of us basically doing the tough, tough rowing in 100-degree heat, uh, and it was it was real tough stuff from that point on. It was already tough, but it was really, really tough, but they decided not to quit. No, they didn't, and that's really significant because – Again, their boat overturned. They, Ren, Reynolds was injured. They were thrown out of the boat violently into a whirlpool, got sucked under. All three of them miraculously got free. Um, and then they had to turn the boat back over upright again, get back in it, totally exhausted at this point, and decide to continue on. So they did. Um, that was just absolutely nuts. Problem is, is they knew the park ranger had seen them. Um, and so they were kind of all worried about possibly losing their river guide licenses because, again, this was a wildcat river run. They, it was not sanctioned. It was technically illegal. But they continued on. They said, we've made it this far. And they kept going and gave themselves, I guess, a, a period where they're like, okay, this is not working anymore. We're all too exhausted. We need to take some rest. Let's just take an hour. And we'll all get some sleep, and then we'll wake up and, and be refreshed, and it'll be like starting over again anew. Yeah, and of course what happens is they sleep for three hours, <laughs> uh, almost woke up in a panic because they had just, you know, almost killed themselves. They're exhausted, and now they're thinking like, now we've jeopardized this record that we're trying to get. We don't know if the river will ever be this fast again. Right. Uh, and here we slept for three hours. So instead of uh, taking their ball and going home, taking their oar and going home, Mm -hmm. they said, now we got to go extra fast. (laughs) So at mile 239, they get out another set of oars. And someone said, where did those even come from? And Grua said, they were at our feet the whole time, dum-dum. And they started rowing two at a time. So they were hauling butt, rowing together. Uh, which obviously, you know, I don't know if that, that probably doesn't double your speed, but you're, you're going much faster at that point. Yeah. So that was, um, they, they woke up at, I guess, about one because they took that rest at 10 and accidentally slept for three hours. So actually, yeah, one. I had to count it out on my fingers for a second. <laughs> and then they kept rowing. And they, another uh, 10 hours later, they finally reached the end. So that like they had just been exerting themselves almost constantly for for 36 hours and 38 minutes. That's what their final time ended up being. So they just yeah. destroyed uh Grua's previous record-setting run um thanks to the river being so nuts. Yeah. He did it. Uh the three of them did it rather. Mm-hmm. And he did not lose his license. He was worried about that. So that's the good news. Yeah. Uh apparently he got a $500 fine which he couldn't even pay. So his lawyer negotiated a community service, which he may or may not have even done. <laughs> uh, and like you said at the very beginning of this, he wasn't a big braggart about his own accomplishments. They kind of spoke for themselves to him. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so he didn't really, you know, it's not like he started making the talk show circuit or anything like that. Uh, but, of course, word was going to get out. People talk. And he, you know, he will always remain a legend of the Grand Canyon and the Colorado River because of the speed run. Yeah, he died at 52 in 2002, and he died uh, while he was riding his mountain bike. And I couldn't find Tough. out how. I was like, that sounds like he went over a cliff or something. Apparently, he had torn his aorta somehow. They're not sure how, 
but he was found laying beside his mountain bike, uh, dead. And, um, his wife at his, I believe his third wife, Michelle Grua, um, said this is exactly how he would have wanted to go. So, yeah, I mean, if you're going to be like a rugged outdoorsman and you die on your mountain bike, that's not the worst way you could go. No, they, they, you know, it seemed like, uh, he was, he was just sort of laying there on his side and they, they said it looked like sort of a peaceful position. So there, there is speculation that he may have sort of known what was going on and just sort of laid down and, you know, to be with the woods. Right. To be with the woods. That's the new euphemism for it, isn't it? <laughs> I guess so. Uh, Michelle Grew also wrote in a memoriam in Boatman's Quarterly, I think, um, that he had mellowed out some, a lot, actually, in his later years. Um, mm-hmm. Still lived the life that he lived, but he became focused on being a dad. I think he had three yeah. or has three kids. Um, and uh, was just, from what I can tell, an all-around interesting, neat dude. Yeah. I mean, he started a, a conservation group, didn't he? He did. Called the Grand Canyon River Guides. That's right. Uh, which is still around today. Uh, and that um, Grand Canyon Dories was sold to an existing outfit called Oars, uh, which gives uh, dory tours down the Grand Canyon still today. Mm, tempting. It tempted me, too. And then I was like, again, 17 days is a little much. And also, do I want to perish? In the Grand Canyon on the Colorado River, and I decided, no, I don't. You could just be with the woods. I'd just rather stay locked inside my house. (laughs) (laughs) You got anything else? No, I got nothing else. I just know that that's one place you will not crash a dory into a boulder is in in your house. No, definitely not. Yeah. Well, since I said definitely not, that means it's time for listener mail. Uh, oh, this is cool. This is from uh, someone who, uh, whose grandmother had a nice little, uh, what do you call them, a, a, a mnemonic device? Yeah. Yeah, for when you want to remember something. Mnemonic. You're thinking of said. pneumatic. No, mnemonic. <laughs> <laughs> hey, guys, uh, Stuff You Should Know is a staple of my daily commute. Truly enjoy learning about common and obscure stuff. And you've helped our trivia team, the Meerkats. Nice. Claim victory on more than one occasion. Go Meerkats. For sure. Uh, Anyway, just finished the episode on the wreck of the Costa Concordia and thought I'd share the way that my grandmother taught me how to remember which direction was port versus starboard. Mm -hmm. Uh, She would say, there's not much port left in the glass, like port wine, uh, port side being left, port left in the glass. Uh, Interestingly, she was not a seafaring woman, nor a lover of port. (laughs) I wish I could recall the context of her telling me this even, but it's always stuck with me, and I thought you might get a kick out of that. Uh, thanks for all the information and laughs. And that is from Aaron. And I wrote Aaron back to see if I could get... Uh, Some free port? No, Grandma's name, but I didn't hear back. So let's just let's just say Grandmother to Aaron. Okay. In tribute. Yeah. And? That's it. Okay. <laughs> Is that Aaron with the A A or Aaron with the E? E R I N. Oh, thanks a lot, Aaron. That's a good one. Um, it's as, at least as good as mine that I came up with. But I'll, what was yours? There's four letters in both port and left. I think. Oh, I think that's no, what that's good was. too. That's how. That's what I remember. So apparently the system works. Yeah, agreed. Well, if you want to be like Aaron and improve or try to improve upon our mnemonic devices, we love that kind of thing. You can send it in an email to stuffpodcast at iheartradio.com. Stuff You Should Know is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Hey, if you haven't heard of Visible, well, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon as low as $25 a month every month, taxes and fees included. Use promo code STUFF. 20 to receive $20 off your first month for listening to this podcast. Switch now at Visible.com. For data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. The Visible monthly rate is $25 per month. 
Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side.